Well, as I mentioned, I would love for you to follow along in the scripture if you would get out your pew Bible. It is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It is easy to find on page 1 of the New Testament. We're going to read those first 12 verses. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise ones from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise ones and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring word to me, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they'd heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for your word, for this story of the wise ones. I pray today that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the message you have for us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Shouldn't the lives of Christians be better? Yes. <laughs> Done. I'm going to sit down. <laughs> this was a question that someone posed to me on a train one time from New Jersey into New York City. Garrett and I have often shared little anecdotes of what happens when you tell people in public that you're a pastor. And it often goes one of two ways. Either people shut down and don't talk to you at all, which is sometimes kind of nice if you're on an airplane and just want some peace. And sometimes people tell you their whole life story or they ask you really intense questions and the conversation goes deep. So this conversation on a train was the second of those two options. And I was commuting back and forth from Princeton into New York City because I was working at a church in Manhattan. And so three times a week I would take this train, hour-long train, each way to go into New York. And I was, it, it was often a time when I was trying to get homework done and do my reading. And, and I was sitting next to this guy, it was really crowded, and he asked what I did and where I was headed. And when I told him I was a pastor, I was secretly hoping it would be the first variety where he would just shut down and I could go back to my homework. But instead, he said, oh, okay, well, I have to tell you, I am an atheist. I said, okay. He said, but I want to tell you why. 
He said, I see the lives of Christians, and they are just as hard as the lives of those of us who don't believe. Christians, I know, still get cancer. Christians have loved ones die tragically. Christians suffer from addictions, and they lose their jobs, and all of the things, and shouldn't, if, if, if belief is really the key, if belief in Jesus is the answer, shouldn't Christians' lives be easier? Shouldn't it be obvious that there's less suffering, that they're doing the right thing? That's why I don't believe. Shouldn't the life of a believer be easier? I wonder how you would have answered his question. Yesterday marked the end of the 12 days of Christmas and the celebration of Epiphany when we remember this story of the wise ones. And largely in our culture, the whole 12 days of Christmas has not been held up. We, we celebrate Christmas on the 25th and then our world kind of moves on. We pack away the Christmas decorations, even I put our tree away yesterday, and we move on with the new year, go back to school, go back to work, and get on with it. But by the church calendar, the Christmas season extends until January 6th, when we culminate with Epiphany and this wonderful moment. And this Epiphany story flies under the radar of our world, and I kind of like the mystery that it's hidden in. In the story, of course, these wise ones from so far away are inspired to follow this curious star, and they feel this nudge, and they follow it, and they're the least likely people to be revealed to Jesus Christ. They are not of the Jewish faith where Jesus has been born and is brought up in. They are religious experts in another culture. They are from far away, and they're curious enough that they keep moving until they start asking questions and King Herod gets a little threatened. They eventually find the Christ child, and many scholars say it probably took them a couple of years that they're no longer in the whole manger scene where we typically picture them, but they're in a house, as it says, and it's some time later. And when they see this Jesus and his family, they know somehow that this is a story for them too. And they bow down, and they worship, and they offer gifts from their own culture. And it's a big enough deal that it changes their lives. And they're warned to not go back the way that they came, to not go back to King Herod. They know that that is trouble, and so they change their route and go home a new way. Christmas and this culmination in Epiphany is often called a miracle of good news and great joy. And I certainly see goodness and joy in this Epiphany story, but I also see a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty in the seeds of conflict. Shouldn't being a Christian make life easier? Certainly not in this story. The very presence of Jesus as an infant causes problems. Just his existence, his presence, and he doesn't even do anything in this version of this gospel story. There are actually divine text stories of, uh, of godliness and of epiphany that have images of infants 
saying things or giving prophecies or glowing in a certain way. And these divine texts have the infant child doing something, but in this gospel story, Jesus is just a baby. And even just his existence as a baby creates a threat and makes Herod uneasy and begins this chain reaction of events that are really, really difficult. The wise ones change their route, and now suddenly they are wanted by a powerful king. I'm sure that after this story, their lives were filled with a little threat and a little nervousness about this king coming for them. This story sets off the chain reaction of a genocide, of the ordering of young children to be killed, and of Jesus and his family of going to Egypt and hiding and becoming refugees. For all of these ones, this story, this presence of Jesus did not make life any easier. We often believe the lie that for something to be good, it should be easy. Our world tells us that when things are good, when things are right, they come without problems, without pain, they come naturally. We often will get into a situation where relationships get hard or our jobs get hard or a new practice or habit maybe we want to start for the new year gets difficult or we hit some roadblocks with goals and we think, well, this must not be right. We just quit. And when things are really difficult in life, when we're encountering problems and hardship, we often think, what have I done wrong? Something's not right. This epiphany story makes me wonder, what if there is wisdom and even deep joy in the difficult? My favorite psychologist and writer is a woman named Dr. Becky Kennedy, and she talks about trauma and about resilience. She says, we often have this misconception that trauma is a really bad event. But trauma is actually the way an event is processed and stored in our minds and in our bodies. So we we typically think, okay, a small bad event would equal a small trauma, and a big bad event would equal big trauma. So if you're in a, you know, minor fender bender car accident, you might have a little trauma from that. But if you're experiencing war firsthand, you might have huge trauma surrounding it. But Dr. Kennedy says, actually, that's not the case. Very small things can cause great trauma, and very big things don't have to have such traumatic response. What makes something traumatic is when we feel alone in it. It's not the event itself. It's the feeling of aloneness surrounded in it. What makes something traumatic is not that it was so bad, it's that we hold it all by ourselves. And she talks about how to be in relationship with people who have experienced really difficult things, and she says, our goal is not to take the difficult away. We can never fully do that. Our goal is to take the alone away. It hit me that this is the miracle of Christmas. This is the miracle of epiphany, that the birth of Jesus doesn't take the hard away. It takes the alone away.
At Christmas, we call Jesus Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And it reminds us that this God experiences the whole spectrum of the human condition, and we can no longer be alone in any of it. From hunger and headaches to oppression and genocide, we have a God who lived it and understands. And that does not mean that it's an easy road. Christmas believing in Jesus isn't what you do to escape the pain of the world, but to engage with it head on with a different perspective, a perspective of the one who is willing to suffer with. Christmas doesn't take the hard away, it takes the alone away. And we remember that. We remember that we are not alone and that we have the presence of a God who understands. It allows us to show up for other people in a new way. Cole Arthur Riley says it well as she thinks about Christmas and she reflects on Christmas alongside the experience of black Americans. She says, Christmas carries no immediate relief, no end to sorrow, We must reclaim joy outside of the artificial cheer it is often reduced to. There is a joy that's defiant, a portal to survival for our ancestors, a way to say we will not be captive to despair nor abandon our belief in beauty. It's joy with teeth, never complacent, always ready. I didn't quite have this answer on the train when this man was talking to me, but if I was asked again, should being a Christian mean our lives are better? I would say yes, just as you said, Jim, but not in the sense that it's easier. Being a Christian should mean that our lives are better because we know we're not alone. And because that knowledge allows us to reach out to others in a meaningful way. I think that's the wisdom that these ones from the East discovered. Their path home was not easier, but they were together and knew that somehow this miracle, this baby that wasn't doing anything quite yet, was for them. I wonder who you might connect with this week not to make their life easier, but maybe to take some of the alone away. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for the gifts that you give us. Mostly the gift of a presence that understands what it is to be human in all of the ways that it is great and all of the ways that it is hard. Remind us that we are not alone. In the name of Jesus, amen.